Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 
Um, for me, it's a bit of a puzzle to even intellectually kind of understand it, and we'll be talking about it some today. And it's also a challenge, a very deep challenge to me, because obviously I think I'm here, you know, and everything I do and say kind of supports that pretty much, you know. So what is it that there's no self-business, and why is that so important, and why is it encouraged so much as an investigation? Um, it's only in recent years that I, I feel like I ever really took it on seriously um, and really tried to grapple with it, so to speak. Um, so I'm going to be talking a bit about uh, what we are not, which is supposedly this solid self, and then a bit maybe what we are, and then we'll have a chance to have a guided meditation that I'll ask you to participate in maybe about 10 minutes or so because really in the Dharma, I think you all know, it's not about an intellectual understanding. At least that's not my experience with the Dharma. I mean, that's helpful. But really what it is is an experience, right? I mean, the Buddha said don't trust what I have to say. Have your experience of it. Check it out. So I've been trying, especially in the last couple of years, to check out <laughs> who I am in this kind of deep Dharma way through more meditation practice, a bit of reading and going to lectures, but more just doing things and the suggestions that I've been given. Um, so I'm going to give you some later on, and um, then we'll have a chance to report back and see what you discovered in all that. There is, however, a teaching about um, what we are. There's two specific ones. Um, one is called the three marks of existence or the three characteristics of our existence as human beings. Now, I'm going to say the three words in Pali, and I want anybody to say, oh, yeah, right, I know kind of what you're talking about. So if I say, um, if I say Anicca, does that mean anything to people? That's the no. Theravadan tradition. Okay, it just means impermanence. Okay, oftentimes you don't hear the Pali word, but that's it. And that's the one that's talked about a lot, and I think it's the easiest for us to stomach, sort of, because we see impermanence all over in ourselves and in the world, and even though it's kind of sad sometimes as these things arise and pass away, we know it's true. And especially if we've been studying or practicing for a while, you know, we kind of we come to a little peace with that. At least that's my experience of it. Um, dukkha, you know? All right, that one maybe you're more familiar with. <laughs> okay, so suffering is the traditional word for that, or pain, um, difficulty, dissatisfaction. Um, and, of course, we're very familiar with that as well, and even though we know that sometimes people get scared about the Dharma because they think it's all about suffering, it's just that the Buddha pointed to it, right, and said, hey, this is really happening, let's deal with it. And this is part of your reality. And the last one, these three marks or characteristics, is anatta, which is a Pali word for no self or not self. And that's the word that, you know, oftentimes, at least the teachers I've been with don't harp on too much and eventually get around to more with senior students. And I think there's a reason for that, like I said earlier, because it's a little scary and a little hard to deal with and doesn't even make sense on some level, right? Um... So as I said, I'm going to just quickly go over those three really quickly, the first two, because I know you have a sense of that, and then we'll spend some more time on the no-self. So anicca or impermanence 
is the observation and the truth of how things come and how things go. It's just as simple as that. And when we have our breathing meditation, right, the instruction is often rising breath, right, passing away breath. There may be some variations on the theme and some suggestions given, but basically that is the thing that we hold internally to really understand impermanence and something about who we are. The Buddha obviously discovered impermanence when he supposedly left his chateau and went out into the world and discovered old age, right, and sickness and death, impermanence. So there's many teaching stories, right, about this, and we know it. We've had friends who die, we've had serious experiences, we've lost our jobs. I mean, you can go on and on about all this. There is change in impermanence, and that is a basic nature of who we are as a body-mind process, right, as well as our experience in the world. Okay, we can kind of grapple with that, I think. Um, Then dukkha, as I say, this arises a lot out of our grasping at impermanence, if you want to see the connection between the two, right? In other words, permanence isn't very pleasant sometimes. You know, it's the passing away of, of happy things oftentimes, or at least things that we've come to think of as permanent or we need to be with. And when they pass away or change, that's the dukkha part, right? And you know from the teachings why it's dukkha or why it's painful. Not because it is in its essence, right? Because why? I know you know this, <laughs> right? Yeah, because you're grasping after it, you're holding on to it, you're trying to solidify it, okay? Number three, okay? Then they hit you with this one. Um, they hit you with the idea that really there is no permanent self. Well, in this dukkha mode or this holding on, this grasping, we can also see how fragile we get to begin to get some insight and in how vulnerable we are. Fear can arise, right? And even more contraction, you know, into solidity. So in a way, when they present us, or at least this is my experience, with the idea that, well, there is no solid self ultimately, it's just a lot to take in. At least that's my experience of it. Um, and there really is a desire to cling and to grasp and to hold on fervently to things. I have had the experience when I am able to open up, and you know the phrase, let go, right? Or at least be gracious towards something that's changing and moving and impermanent in my world or even in my body. There can be a kind of um, a relief. Um, that the illusion of permanence actually kind of vanishes for a moment, and we actually see, oh, yeah, right, right, what, did I, what was I thinking? You know, kind of, or what was I really feeling about this? It's okay, it's okay. And so there can be a grounding and a kind of assurance in that also, from my experience, and that's the tiptoeing into no self, because it's really the same thing we begin to vanish in a kind of a um, subtle way, I think, at first, and maybe a more deeper and deeper opening as we move ahead. One of the typical um, Zen teachings on this, for those of you who come from that tradition, 
um, is the glass or the cup is already broken. You've heard that before? It's a pretty strong teaching. And again, it's counterintuitive. You know, what do you mean? <laughs> it's holding water, right? But it holds within itself the nature to disappear. That's what they're talking about. And actually, when I look at this, I can kind of get that. You know, yeah, this probably won't be around forever, right? <laughs> you know, and we even know um, that its capacity to do that is unpredictable. We don't know. You know, if it's on our shelf for 20 years, it may be a long time. Our friend comes over and drops it. It's gone, right? We can't even predict it. So you see the transference over into our lives. Um, the lover is already gone. I think that's a very strong teaching, or the friend, or the parent, you know? Um, I've had people who cannot practice that with their children, you know? It, that's really counterintuitive. You know, you've heard psychologically, if a child dies before a parent, it's one of the most devastating things. So I understand that. But some of the Zen masters, they really practice this all the time. You know, they look at something they cherish, and they say yes, and it has the nature to disappear. You know, it is, it is openness, it is impermanence. And it is, is here with me now. And then what happens, right? Joyfulness also. And gratitude. Right? Like, wow, but, but my, my, my lover is here right now. You know, that kind of... So all these to me are sort of preambles to anatta, which is the third characteristic of our existence, where I think, from my experience in the Western world, we get the most hung up. There's a basic misunderstanding, again, about who we are. As I mentioned earlier, um, no-self is present in all three of the main traditions, at least the ones that I'm the most familiar with. So if you go into Theravada or Vipassana, you're going to hear no-self or no-cell itself. It's usually the way it's explained. Um, and there's a lot of teachings about it. But it's not always emphasized very much. My experience with Zen is you may hear the phrase um, emptiness, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Have you ever heard any of your Zen friends or yourself kind of say, oh, well, you know, form is emptiness, emptiness is form? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, right, you know. Sure. Um, you know, 15 or 20 years ago when people said that to me, I just thought, well, you know, that's an idea. You know, whatever. <laughs> but really, you know, it doesn't even make sense. Right? But unfortunately, you know, we just kind of talked about it over here, you know. So yes, it's just a very shortcut in. You know, it's sort of a short way in like a koan or something. For me, I'm a little slower than that. So I needed years, you know, of contemplation, of reality, of our reality, and of my own body-mind process to begin to think that, or to experience that this was kind of true. But that's one of the catchwords from Zen. And then we have um, Tibetan practices. Are any of you Tibetan practices or Vajrayana practices? Not so much here. Um, I have gotten more into that tradition in the last uh, three or four years um, because it's so colorful. You know, it's so beautiful. And, it, and, and if you get a really good teacher, um, you'll find a lot of cross-teaching, at least from my viewpoint, between Vipassana or Theravada and Tibetan, oddly enough. 
That's been my experience because they do do Vipassana meditation and they do do breathing meditation and they do do all these things. The words are a little bit different, but if you get the instruction, it's really very similar. At least that's been my experience. And there's also some other amazing things they do too, but the language that I picked up there about no self is close to Zen, but it's more appearances in emptiness. So that's form and emptiness, but they break it down even more. They say, oh no, right from the get-go, this is all appearances. You know, they don't emphasize the solidity of form or the shape. You know, so you think you're seeing this cup. <laughs> and we're all seeing it a little differently, probably, from our mind-body experience, but we probably could agree on most of the things about it. Right? But, you know, Rinpoche will say, well, yes, that's an appearance. And, you know, I have a particular affinity for this tradition because um, they talk a lot about rainbows. <laughs> and um, that's the other image. You know, they talk about the ultimate beautiful appearance, right, of the rainbow. Right? I was just driving my car the other day, and um, I saw one in the distance in the hills. And have you ever done that? You know, you've actually turned off or taken a different road or something because you want to see it more. There's the grasping, you know. It's okay. It's it's fine. It's not a bad thing. But oh, it's so gorgeous. If I if I could just see it longer, because we know we know for sure this one's going to go away, right? Maybe in ten minutes. Maybe in two minutes. And it's so beautiful, isn't it? You know. So there's that's a, a really nice practice. I think we're looking at the rainbow and feeling all this stuff we're talking about. You know, your desire for the beauty, the truth that it appears to be there, and it kind of is there. And now it's not there at all, you know. And we have no idea if and when it's coming back, right? So that's the gift of the Tibetan teachings, I think, around all this. For me, anyway. The appearance of ourselves and the word phenomena, the Tibetans keep using that word phenomena. This is all phenomena. You know, that's really vague, isn't it? You know, they keep taking, keep taking the identity and the naming, the labeling out of it. You know, so now we're just phenomena, peering. Um, seems so very vivid, right? And that's a little bit of an interesting thing, I think. I think that's interesting because I really do believe that new physics and all these things has proven this stuff to be true, on some level, right? It's just that I don't have the experience of it. You know, I just have this gorgeous candles there. You know, um, but they're saying it's not that the candle's not there, or let's say this this wooden altar isn't here. It's that it doesn't have permanent nature, and it also doesn't have intrinsic, solid sense of identity or selfness, or something that's enduring. There's the impermanence again. I'm trying to get more than no self. Um, self-essence. So again, if we took this table or altar, whatever, apart, and we could do that today. We could take it apart. We could keep taking it apart. When would it not become an altar anymore? When would it become something else we might label? Right? So that would be impermanence. But it would be changing, maybe. We would label it. We would have a desire, right, to label it something else. Piece of wood. You know, <laughs> splinter, okay, gets smaller and smaller. Then we label it like the Buddha did 
Um, he had a word, kalapas. Have you ever heard of that word? It's just his word for um, like a you know, very, very small speck of energy you know, that we see through atomic kind of fusion and things like that. The very smallest thing that he could see or feel or sense. Um, and he sensed that even that wasn't the smallest thing and that there was, in fact, no solid entity. And that's what we'd find with the altar, right? So who are we? We're an interdependent process without solid or an independent center or substance. Same thing with the cup, same thing with the altar. So then what are we? Well, we're obviously here. We have to be something, right? So then the Buddha um, went through what he called the five skandhas or the five aggregates. And this is Theravada sort of um, sutra teaching. Have you heard this, the five things that we really are? Yeah. So I'll just go through quickly so to encourage you that you really exist again. Because, <laughs> you know, it gets scary. <laughs> um, and, and really because you can begin to see that it's not crazy, that we really are something and we're not something else. Okay? And we get confused in all that. So what we are is body or matter. That's the first one. Thank you, because that's really obvious to all of us. Um, and that's where the word form, I think, comes from a lot. We all have a form we get very preoccupied with. <laughs> but they insist that this form cannot be grasped. And if you do mindfulness meditation into the body in a, in a really strong Theravadan way, I would challenge you to find something solid inside there. You know, of course you will find, well, we'll see, I won't give it away. We're going to meditate. But you'll see, you know, what you can find. Um, number two, sensations and feelings. It would be really crazy for the Dharma to be teaching us that we don't have feelings, right? I mean, we live in a feeling sense-based place. What is it about, though? Well, they're pleasant and they're unpleasant. We've been taught that. How do we have these sensate experiences? Well, we have them through, you know, this is pure dharma again, the sense organs, right? You've probably heard those teachings. So seeing is what? Well, seeing is the sense of light coming into this mind-body process and the mind, you know, seeing something. That's valid. And touching and all the rest. But Tibetans point out, they call them bubbles, <laughs> They actually say that all these feelings and sensations we have are like bubbles and they're bound to burst. So Tibetan, you know, they have these nice little images they use. So we are these things, but they're not long-lasting. They only last an instant, and they have no true identity. The next one, perception. This one's a little more tricky. It's, I think, helping us a lot is the idea to think of babies. When you're around babies and they start to perceive their reality, you know how they are, they're sort of spaced out and then they go like this and, you know, kind of like this. So they're beginning to receive, oh, a sense of self, right, and other. So they're going like this thing, oh, mama, me, 
food, <laughs> whatever, lights, you know, whatever they're seeing. They are recognizing objects, and this is the phenomena that they would refer to. They, that does exist in our reality. But you know what I have to say now, right? Does it have an intrinsic sense of self? Is it permanent? Tibetan uses the word mirage. I like that one too. So this poor little baby, you know, it's there, it's opening its eyes, it's seeing all these appearances, and yet its job is to come into our reality, right? So it needs to negotiate all this and have labels and names and grow up just like we do. At that point, it's not fixated, though, you know, the way we get to be as adults. But it is negotiating all that. But ultimately, they all pass away, and it's a mirage. In the Western world, we seem um, very attached to what they call, number four, mental formations, our thoughts, our ideas. I think just as much sometimes as our feelings are depending on our personality. And they really strongly point to this one. Thoughts and ideas, again, are real in the moment. They appear to us. They serve us well. But we don't solidify them, don't grasp after them, don't think that they're, they have a true nature to them. They're just something that's helpful sometimes. <laughs> Not always, even. And they, I don't know if anybody knows about a banana tree, but this is the symbol. And the banana tree, from what I've been told, is empty inside. In other words, if you were to cut one across... It doesn't have a solid core like you would think, like a regular tree. It has some kind of empty core inside. So it grows, but it holds emptiness inside. It has leaves and fruit, like a thought. Thoughts can be very fruitful and helpful and even nourishing, right? But again, the symbol is no solidity ultimately. Consciousness. We are alive. And this one is a little harder to explain, I think. But consciousness is the fifth skanda, or the fifth element of our existence here, what we really are. And um, they say awareness or consciousness is a well-conceived deception. I kind of like that language. I don't really, I can't embody it exactly. But I do like it. Kind of, kind of clever, you know. In other words, we're conscious, yes. But the deception comes in, naming it I, again. There is an energy going on, and we are present, and we call that life, or life force, or presence, or something. But really, if we start to solidify it, that's it's the wrong way to go. That's a deception. But it's a tricky one. Okay. So they're trying to say when we examine our experience, we find there's no core being to whom our experiences refer. And I like this one too. It's about empty phenomena rolling on. <laughs> it's kind of cute. Empty of what? Empty of self. Okay? Always back to the same thing. 
So now the word empty. Yeah, that's not very pleasant. At least I, that's not my word. I mean, I'm empty. You know, in our culture, that doesn't, I mean, initially sound like a great thing, right? It seems like nothingness, right? But of course, that's not what the teaching is. We're empty of what? Independent self, but we're full of everything, right? Try to understand that. This um, women's spirituality, actually, I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but helped me a lot understanding this because they talk about the womb a lot and they talk about pregnancy and words like that. And that, that worked for me, kind of. You know, I thought, oh, yeah, right, the empty womb, the potential for all things at any moment, but really empty, but not really empty because there is something, but it's vast and it's creative, it's potential, but it's not solid. So that's a nice analogy, reflecting all, re all possibility. So this emptiness that I think they're saying we are, rather than all the other stuff about self and identity, and um, for me, has a bit of a sensate quality. For me, this was really good news. Because I can't understand this just by thinking about it. So what does it feel like? Is there a sense to it? Ah. For me, yeah, there kind of is. There is. Um, I don't like to talk and tell you what it's supposed to feel like or something. But some of the words that are often used, and they're the words that are always used in the Dharma. Peacefulness, right? Warmth. Um, even bliss, you'll hear that. So those are positive things. So what I'd like us to do, if you have the energy for it, is to do a practice that I'll guide investigating some of these things. And I'll just ask you questions and... Um, just allow yourself to be on a journey of discovery. It's as simple as that. Okay? Beginning by using whatever, whatever method or technique you have for coming fully present. You may be focusing on the breath. yourself to open up to this present moment, this room filled with loving Dharma friends, 
quiet and the stillness. Just allowing yourself to feel supported by that. We're entering into a state called calm abiding, a term from, again, I borrow from Tibetan Buddhism, just meaning presence, abiding calmly, but abiding, bringing ourselves here. Relaxed, yet alert. There may be thoughts arising, other phenomena, ideas. Sensations in the body. Or even feelings like worry or sadness. Joy. Just letting it all flow through. No need to grasp after cares or concerns right now. Just allowing yourself to rest in a place of calm, simple, pure awareness. And as we settle, we experience a more equanimous state. We can bring our awareness to that which is beyond time, the ever-present state of our true nature. So just resting there. gazing at our true nature, allowing ourselves to gaze at our true nature. Just a gentle gaze. It can be like starlight, it can be boundless, or there can be a felt sense of a boundary or limit. But often when we investigate, there is none. however it is for you. And then just asking if there is a quality to this experience of resting in true (coughs) awareness, 
pure awareness. Now begin with bringing your pure awareness to any sensation you may be experiencing. Touching the sensation with your mind's awareness. Just rest there for a moment. Any bodily sensation. Can you move with your awareness into that sensation or beyond that point? Is this sensation solid? What happens when you go under it or through it or beyond it? try too hard, just allow awareness to do its job. (laughs) And if thought permeates your, your sitting, do the same. Or if you're not having much thought, maybe bring one forward. Just a pure thought about anything, but bring pure awareness and tension to the thought. Not the story behind it, just the pure thought. And again, bringing awareness to this pure thought, is it solid? And then, where is the self that creates it? Can you find a self in your inner experience? Just relax and maybe gaze into your inner self. We're looking for the direct experience of reality. When you have this, we know the truth for ourselves. This is Buddhist inquiry. Can you find a self in your inner experience? Thank you.
And then finally, there's the invitation to look into who is witnessing all this, directing the mind to the agent. Where is the agent that looks or knows? bringing ourselves back into the sense of the sitting this this body sitting breathing allowing ourselves to feel that and then when you're ready just slowly open your eyes and if they were closed and let the light of the room back into your consciousness experience that can be difficult or a little frustrating unless you have a strong meditation practice because the two pieces were involved the first one concentration you had to get clear enough and focused enough to direct your awareness towards something right and then the second part was more insight based you were being asked questions You know, well, as I direct my awareness there, what is happening? And you have to stay focused and allow for whatever to come up, to come up and to be there for it. So it's, it's, um, it's a lot from my experience, but I really wanted to share it with you. Um, So we're going to take maybe five or 10 minutes to share here. Uh, Please turn to somebody um, you're sitting next to, and um, the question is, what did you discover, if anything, or what was that like for you? And uh, we'll ring a bell and come back together in a moment. Five or ten minutes, we'll see how it goes. What was that like for you? Did you find a self? your name again? Philip. Philip. I'm thinking about um, as living things are born, they, they reproduce. 
use and they die. All living things do that. And, uh, and to do that requires a certain amount of uh, it's the biological determination, evolution, and psychological. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking in the case of humans, well, we also have those directions already in our DNA, and, you know, both biochemical and psychological. So this, doesn't that make it really difficult to feel like a non-self or a non-entity? Yeah. It's against evolution almost. Do you think so? Little. I can see that. Um, I don't know. For me, it, it, I can deal with that within the concept. <laughs> You know, because it is an impermanent, ever-changing... There's something continuing and growing in the process. But if you start bringing reincarnation into it, you know, that's not so far from evolution in a certain kind of strange way. You know, they're, they're implying also that something is going on, you know, or the force is going on or something. Um, and then you get into really heady discussions about that. Um, you know, the teaching usually is there is a force or an energy or a life force which is pure awareness, right? Which is the emptiness. And that is what continues. It's because emptiness is not nothing, right? It's this potential for growth or the potential for creation, right? So you could make the case that evolution is pure awareness, growing, expanding, I don't know. Um, but I know that's how they explain a lot of things around reincarnation. And, and not all of Buddhism has the same rap on reincarnation anyway. You know, they have a little bit more solidity over here and a little less solidity over there. So, you know, it's an experience, you know. We have to have our own reality. But it's a nice way of questioning and thinking about it. Thank you, Philip. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for your wonderful talk, as always. Thanks, Tom. Um, and this... This is absolutely where the shoe pinches for Buddhism with me because I really love people. I like specific people totally. Yeah, I hope I'm one of them. Yeah, you are. Um, and just, you know, we were talking, coming out of the sense of wonderful spaciousness and nothing solid. Mm -hmm. And then we open our eyes to this room full of acutely specific people. Right. Um, do you think there's something else that some relationship between I mean clearly we're not our ego or our biography but something that accumulates that something that grows um, oh, you're asking the same question yeah, right. in another way right I don't know yeah. is, is this just the mystery of life I mean the, the, there is the definitely body. something going on right <laughs> <laughs> You know, as you were talking, I was having the, that experience. Right. You know, as you were talking, it's so nicely through. I was saying, yeah, you know. Well, yeah, it was the first thing I said when I got here. Wow, you guys look really great. It was sort of the same thing that you're talking about. You open your eyes and you see this, you know. It's not nothing. But I don't know if it has a solid essence in some kind of way. I don't know. <laughs> and do you feel that there are people in your life, and, and I don't know if mean this is reincarnation, but they... You, you know them when you meet them for the first time. Certainly they feel very familiar, yes. Yes, yes. in a pleasant... Well, even in a negative yeah, way. <laughs> Mostly I, I feel more in a pleasant way. Yes, yes. And I don't know the answer, but I do pay attention to all those things. I don't discount them and say, oh, that doesn't mean anything. Of course it means something. You know, it's very important, actually. 
And those things always pan out, don't they? They're usually yeah, they're true. Yeah, yeah. So is that reincarnation? Is I don't know. Anybody else? Yeah. Well, I, uh, yeah, the fifth stand that you that you were consciousness, referring to, yeah. consciousness is the one of I, you know, like you. That's the hardest to uh, wrap my consciousness around. Turning that focus back on what's doing the focusing. Right. It, it's really yeah. It, it's really, really hard, and, and even. My sense is not that I've ever experienced that level, but uh, that it would be inexpressible, it would be ineffable. If, if you know, that consciousness turns to itself cannot be explained uh, in words. Uh, I should think it would be very others. difficult. Hmm. You know, that's probably why you don't hear a lot of talk about it also, because how do you? But that idea as the, as the ultimate deception, you know, it's kind of a negative way of thinking of it, but that's somebody's trying to put it into words. The pregnant... You know, space of the womb is another... There's so many ways, you know? I don't know. I don't have words for it either. Is there somebody else? Yeah. Well, I was reminded while you were speaking that I come from the theater, and to me the theatrical metaphor Mm. uh, explains it, because the characters on stage are not real. They're not alive. Actors play them, and yet they all emanated from one consciousness that wrote the play. And the play itself is not even visible. <laughs> it's good. It's, 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 it's an inner. It's an inner construct that's, that that's disseminated from a oneness, and the individuals take on that. Uh, so that's why we are our, our actors on the stage of life, playing our parts that has been created out of this one consciousness. For me. Mm-hmm. Wow. Should write that down or something. <laughs> Seriously, because that's it's really nice. I couldn't I never explained it that way. That's beautiful. Yeah, and it's also gonna open me up when I'm watching something now. You know, to think about reality and, and, and how this is this thing is happening. Yeah. And then there's the watcher, the audience. Yes, the audience That's participating. That's why the metaphor in totality. Right, and to creating... Me, explains all those points of views happening simultaneously. You can be in the actor knowing you're in a play while somebody's watching, or you can be the audience watching suggestion that's been placed by somebody else. So all those, wow. points, all those points of view are happening in the theatrical metaphor. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Anyone else before we have to close? Yes. The question it's a little bit different. So I come out of the Jewish tradition, which is all self all the time. And there are many refugees from the Jewish tradition towards Buddhism, just for the peace that it offers. True. Um, certainly, I'm here uh, for meditation and for improvement in my meditation practice, and the Buddhism stuff that is a wider philosophy um, it's not new to me but it's so here's my thing I almost feel like I want to pick and choose like a buffet table what's going to work for me mm-hmm. as I learn more about Buddhism yeah. and in the Jewish faith that's really not your option it's kind of mm-hmm. take it or leave it yeah. so do you have a feeling about as you begin your scholarship your comfort level of again picking and choosing what works for you where you are and not sort of worrying about the stuff that you're in conflict with or don't freaking understand. Right. Well, definitely the answer is yes, because I said tonight that this no-self thing was one of them (laughs) and still is to some degree. Um, But what I do think is important, or at least usually helpful, especially in the Bay Area here, there's so many types of Buddhism too, and that can get confusing. 
Well, just like Judaism or anything else, you know. So I usually recommend try to find a teacher or some sangha that you feel comfortable with and stay there for a while. And just not that you have to believe everything they do, but at least narrow the field a little bit, so, you know, so the language is more or less the same, the meditations are more or less, you know, for a year or two kind of similar. And even within that, there'll probably be things that, you know, you feel drawn to and things you don't. But that, that's the only suggestion I have because I see that with students today. You know, they go all over the place and they hear these concepts. They're similar. They mean the same thing, but they're not the same words. You know, and people get confused and they come to my sangha and we have silent practice like you do sitting meditation. And I always guide a little bit in the beginning because I don't know what they're doing. You know? <laughs> well, I don't. And I don't know that they do necessarily. You know, they might, but who knows? You know, and, and, and that's not good either. So that's sort of the halfway, the midpoint answer that I have for that. But I would certainly encourage you to go with the things that you feel drawn to more than anything else and not worry about the rest of it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Carol. I think we're, uh, it's 12 noon uh, exactly. So thanks a lot for your, uh, thank you. for your uh, talk. And, and if you care to stay around for a little bit afterwards, so, you know, some, uh, I'll talk to you one on one if possible. Okay. Great. Uh, Okay, so this time for announcements. Any announcements? Uh, yeah, Jerry. Yes, um, the GBF uh, 2013 retreat is going to be September 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Uh, we've had a couple of people drop out, so we do have room. So if you're interested in going, see me after. Uh, I'm Len, I'm the host for today, which means that I supply the snacks on the table, and there's hot water for tea. And if you have tea, please wash out your cup with soap and water. Uh, I'll be going around with the Donna Bowl, and that is a suggested donation for the sound of five to eight dollars, more or less as you are able. That um, money goes to support uh, not only the operational costs of the sangha, but the programs and the outreach. And uh, let's see, finally, oh, if you are new, um, Jason, if anyone else that wants to sign up uh, for a mailing list, I believe it's on the way outside the door on the door right there. And then finally at 12.30 after social hour, the sort of congregate outside the door who would like to go to lunch and all the welcome. And one thing that just came to mind uh, next weekend for if anybody hasn't been around, I was out of town for a couple of weeks and then I realized with a startled by the Bay Bridge is going to be closed for nearly a week. Uh, so next weekend, uh, it's likely to be a very difficult to get here, not just for people from the East Bay, uh, but uh, I, I imagine the park will be pretty full and you know, all the other bridges will be. So I just wanted to make people aware of that in case there weren't. Okay, so it's oh, time next, next week we'll have small group discussions. Oh, great. <laughs> all right, so it's time for our dedication of merit. Uh, By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. 
If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.